The following program is paid for by Wealth Enhancement Group. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Wealth Enhancement Group or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of News Talk 830WCCO or Intercom Communications. Advisory services offered through Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Certain but not all investment advisor representatives at Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services are also registered representatives of and offer securities through LPL Financial Member FINRA, SIPC. Wealth Enhancement Group and Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services are separate entities from LPL. Wealth Enhancement Group is a registered trademark of Wealth Enhancement Group, LLC. Sound strategies to make sense of your financial life. Answers to everyday questions pertaining to your money. Brought to you by Wealth Enhancement Group. Helping you invest with confidence and clarity. After all, it's your money. It is your money. Rashini Rajkumar here on WCCO Radio with your host, Bruce and Peg. You can text and call us today on our studio line, 651-989-9226. And all week, ask your questions of Peg and Bruce at 888-6ADVICE or email them to your money at wealthenhancement.com. Here's Senior Vice President, Financial Advisor Peg Webb, and the founder of Wealth Enhancement Group, Financial Advisor Bruce Helmer. Happy Valentine's Day, Bruce and Peg. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you, Rashini. So, ladies, are, are you both looking at a big bouquet of flowers right now? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we already had a wonderful dinner last night, so I have to give the shout out to the hubby. Took me out for dinner, so that was really nice. Okay, yeah. that's fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, I happen to be living in a place that has lots of flowers already <laughs> in the garden. And so I think yeah, I suppose he could have picked a couple and brought them in. But my husband is super sweet in that he uh, hand writes uh, Valentine's cards, and I've got them all from all years past. And oh, so, that's really good. Yes, yeah, just a um, memory, just going through them this morning. Oh, oh that's nice really Mike. sweet, Peg. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Peg, what's your? Just I gotta ask, what's your weather today? Uh, Eighty-five. I hate you. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, we have we have a pretty much a hundred uh, hundred degree swing here right now today. I think. <laughs> All right, let's get into this. Uh, so, uh, Peg, last week, and and uh, those that listen to the show consistently or every week know that we got a question last week that neither one of us felt like we could give a good answer to. So, I made a commitment that we would uh, do a little homework and come back and answer it this week. And our roundtable, as they always do, came through for us again. So I'll set up the question. Someone had called in, and they were they were receiving, as they put it, army pay, um, you know, retired military pay. But specifically, this person said army pay. It doesn't show up as income, and that part kind of threw us. And we're still not sure why that's the case. And then, what impact would that have on their social security? Yeah, so the roundtable actually said that uh, generally military pension does not impact Social Security uh, benefit at all. So it's it it can be kind of unique, but um, it does. So the the military the military absolutely, Bruce, are like you and I, where they get money taken out of their paychecks and put into the Social Security system. So by way of that alone, they actually qualify for Social Security payments. And so they're just like us also in that when we start our Social Security, 
Um, they also are taxed on it based on their tax bracket, just like you and I would be. So I think what happened, Bruce, is I think uh, calling the Social Security Administration at this point, if that income is not showing on your records, and, and not only would I encourage this person to look at their records, but everybody listening today to look at your records to make sure that your credits, if you will, the income that you're making is on your report. Yeah, good good advice. And, and again, because um, if, if they're receiving that uh, retired military pay, it ought to be showing up somewhere. But uh, um, so uh, I'm I'm glad that the roundtable knew the answer to that. I I didn't at the time, and certainly you or I could have researched it. But that's what they're so good at, and that's what they're so helpful at. Not just on calls on the radio show, but with. Uh, the clients that all of our advisors work with, we can always turn to that roundtable. Peg, I wanted to go back on another one from last week. Um, this one, we, we, we actually answered pretty well. Someone, and I don't remember how they termed the, 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 what they were talking about, but you and I both assumed it was retirement income planning. They were talking about, they, they, they used a particular phrase about, oh, drawdown. They talked about drawdown. And it occurred to me after the show that what maybe what they were really looking for is what's a safe percentage of, of your nest egg or of your assets at retirement? How much of that per year can you safely draw down and not have to worry about running out of money? We So we gave, I thought, a good answer, but it occurred to me later that maybe that's what they were looking for, and we did not talk about that. Uh, that's actually a really good question. Uh, there is a Monte Carlo uh, method out there uh, that is kind of what I would call a standard. And what a Monte Carlo is, is, is looking at the future and predicting your sequence of returns. Because uh, believe it or not, that's one thing that you can't control don't like that, but you can't control what you're going to earn on your savings each and every year. So what this Monte Carlo does is it actually runs a thousand different trials and a thousand different sequence of returns. So in the first year, you may have plus 10%, but the next year may have negative five. So just imagine a thousand trials. Well, then um, that translates into, well, how many of those um, years that you are going to still live, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30, do you still have a dollar left at the end? And so we call that your probability of success. So if you have 99, you know, 990 that are successful, then the probability of the distribution that you want to take is, is great. So the general guidelines with that plan is typically if you're in your 60s and you take a 4% distribution for the rest of your life, um, which also includes an inflation number. So Wealth Enhancement Group uses somewhere between 2 and 3%, then um, you should be safe and have money left at the end. So we use that, Bruce, as a general guide in our uh, financial forecasting. Yeah, and I think that's a commonly accepted percentage, 4% withdrawal rate. But again, obviously that's going to change based on how old you are when you retire and you start to withdraw. If you withdraw later in life, that percentage should go up because you need income for less years. The other thing, I'm glad you brought up Monte Carlo uh, uh, scenarios. 
One of the things about Monte Carlo peg that 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 I find inaccurate is you know they they do random scenarios based on different sequence of returns, but I think the assumption always is is that you spend money when the market's down, and so that sequence of returns is very impactful if you're selling stocks when the market's down. But part of our answer last week, the way we coach our clients. Hopefully and presumably, they don't ever sell stocks when the market's down because we've carved out three different buckets of money for them for three different time frames. So the 4% number, I think personally, and I know there's a lot of advisors, even some at Wealth Enhancement Group, that might disagree with me. I think that number's probably overly conservative. Um, at number one and number two, you really have to look at every individual situation because again, everybody's different. Uh, just like snowflakes, people are different, and that withdrawal rate, that safe withdrawal rate, is really going to vary from person to person. And finally, there's certain strategies that we can use that can actually contractually guarantee a withdrawal rate that might be higher than four um, percent. I've got one right now that I'm looking at a 70 year old. I can guarantee them 6% for life. So the, the, I think the, the Monte Carlo uh, scenarios and, and that type of calculation can be valuable to at least get us in the ballpark if we're talking generically on a radio show. But if we're working with a client individually, we're going to drill down a lot deeper and try to get a much more accurate answer. Yeah. And then one last thing, it really does depend on how much risk you're willing to take also. Right. Because if you're sitting in a money market paying 0.25 versus being exposed to the stock market or growth with some percentage, that actually really changes your uh, percentage that would be, um, you know, uh, that we're able to take per year. Absolutely. Good point. All right. Let's jump in. So uh, we we mentioned Valentine's Day at the outset. And in, in honor of Valentine's Day, we thought we would do a show talking about getting married later in life. You know, we tend to, um, I think, talk about marriage as a, as a young person's thing. And as someone pointed out to us again on last week's show, we don't have to always talk about couples. Sometimes we could talk about singles, and uh, I, I think that's a great idea. And stay tuned for that. We'll probably do that someday. But today, in, in kind of in honor of Valentine's Day, we're, we're talking about financial planning strategies and ideas for someone that gets married later in life, whether it's a first marriage or a second marriage, but uh, getting married later in life. Yeah, and I think at Wealth Enhancement Group, we live through all these people's lives. So even though I haven't experienced this personally and I haven't experienced everything that my clients have gone through, I think we're, we're great coaches in that we deal with this every day. I recently just had a client call me and, and, and say, oh, my gosh, you know, he popped the question. Well, they're 75 years old, right? And it, not that that's old and not that, that I don't think that's young, but as I was talking to her, and she's been the client, a client of ours for decades, she said, and I started asking questions like, um, <clears throat> well, did you sit down? I mean, do you have the same kind of goals? Um, are you going to merge your money? Uh, one thing she said to me, I don't even know what he has. And I went, oh, okay. Well, maybe you want to find out, you know, some of these things. And then she said, oh, I know we have to go to a legal person and, and deal with all that because he has kids and this will be his third marriage. And But do you hear how complicated this can get? 
Uh, so the Absolutely, theme, yep. Yeah, so the theme I just want to start with is um, we are super happy for people who want to um, have that commitment with one another at any age. But then we start to ask these questions, you know, well, if you're not retired yet, when do you plan to retire? It's really like merging two families, not, you know, not quite as as it's really not that different, right, than if you're in your 20s or 30s or 70s, although you probably have a little bit more complexity in your life. You know, there might be some kids, there might be some, you know, savings where one was a really good saver and one was a spender. Um, and then, you know, do you know each other's families? Uh, and and a lot of people today, they just continue working while they're retired. So, I know enough people, Bruce, and then I'll give you the the mic. <clears throat> I know enough people that are so set in their ways when it comes to money and just the idea of sharing, you know, let's say you've been single for a long time, just the idea of sharing is a big hurdle to get over um, sometimes. I, I think those are all great points and really kind of, you know, what I heard you say is you you know, communication is important here. You have to understand uh, what the other person's financial goals and objectives are and find out if they're consistent with your own. And if they're not, how do we find a compromise that makes both happy? And we have to know what their financial situation is because if you marry someone and they've got a mountain of debt, are you now signing on for that res- <laughs> that responsibility to pay that debt? So I think, you know, again, it's, it's not very romantic, but it's practical that you that you learn about one another's financial situation, and then beg just to kind of uh, jump on the wagon that uh, that you started. Um, different. I, I've had similar you know experiences with clients, and different clients handle it differently. Some clients are what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. It's uh, not. It's it's ours. Everything's ours. And others split it up. Mine is mine. Yours is yours, and we're not going to commingle that. You have to. So as the advisor, I have to treat the, the both people in the relationship as individuals rather as together as one couple. And there's no right or wrong way, but it, the, you need to know how you both feel about that. Yeah, and then um, we all we, we definitely have clients when they come in for their strategy review. Um, I have to I have to do separate documents. I mean, they're married, but I have to do separate documents because the beneficiaries are different. And, you know, at, at, at that person's death, they're giving it to their kids. And what resources will the, um, the one that's left have based on those two uh, financial statements? So it, it does get a little complex. But eventually, you have to have all those discussions. And sadly enough, sometimes it happens after they're married. But uh, you can't keep that secret too long. And then, uh, you know, um, especially when there's children, I think. And then, then, Bruce, I also have to throw in, sometimes those people got an inheritance from their parents that they're super sensitive that they want to get down to their children, um, you know, instead of um, the person that they just recently married. Yeah, and all these things are okay. It's just, again, I'm going to probably keep repeating myself. 
the key is to com- to communicate. If you've got an asset that has sentimental value and that's not an asset that you're going to share with your new partner and there's a logical reason why, tell them that. I'm sure they'll if they love you, they'll understand and that doesn't have to be a source of conflict. But it's like you said, oftentimes these conversations don't happen until later and then there is a good chance that there's going to be conflict. These are things you should talk about, I think, before you walk down the aisle. Well, and as advisors, sometimes I believe I should have a psychology degree because I'm asking all these questions and and sometimes uncomfortable for me, but just trying to give them the insight of what's coming. And then I'm so happy for them because in a lot of cases, they're planning the wedding you know the wedding day and how what's that going to cost and and do they are they both on the same page that they want to have a 200 person you know reception not so much during covid now that it's much smaller but what's the venue going to be and and who's going to help and how is that going to you know put a dent in your retirement savings all of that so Bruce that goes with communication again so a lot of our points are, you know, having a, a, a good sit down and um, walking through all those things, including income tax. Because if indeed you're single now, you're on a completely different tax rate system than if you do joint returns. And this um, client that I just talked to a couple weeks ago, when I told her, I said, oh, you're going to be going to the joint return, which in a lot of cases is favorable she was elated, you know, that she wasn't going to have to follow that uh, single grid anymore. And then when it comes to Social Security, that's another thing on our item here on our uh, implications here with getting married. You know, there's Social Security and Medicare, and we can get more into that, too. Um, Yeah, there's a couple other things we can get to. But Rashidi, if we've got a text or a call, we can uh, get listeners involved uh, in the first half of the show quickly if we want. Absolutely. And people can call and text throughout the rest of the hour, 651-989-9226. And I think what was so fun today on this Valentine's Day, Peg and Bruce, is there were texts coming in before I got on the air at 7 a.m. So people were ready and waiting for you, uh, which is so wonderful. All right. So this person says, good morning. Just love your show. Excellent advice that I glean from you each and every day. Would you please explain how amortizing works with our mortgage and our lender. How can this save us money? Uh, Amortizing a mortgage, and how does that save you money? Um, Peg? So amortization is a schedule of time and interest rate, and then how long the time is, how long will it take to pay off that debt? And then the interest rate is usually a fixed rate. But when you amortize, this is the most misunderstood point, I think, is let's just say it's a 30-year amortization. And the first payment that you make is typically, and I'm going to be really dramatic, 90% of your payment is interest. So not a lot of it goes to principal. So the general rule is, as you continue to make payments, most of it's going to the organization that's um, getting the interest, so like a bank or a mortgage company. And then as you continue to pay down the debt, it's less and less interest. The second part about being an advantage 
Um, I'm not a big debt person, so I, I kind of freak out when I see how much interest in the beginning of an amortization goes, you know, to the bank. But um, I just don't, I don't know that there's any real negatives other than it, it, it's going to cost you some interest. Yeah, and the only thing I would add, and and, and by the way, 90% uh, interest in, in the beginning years probably isn't too far off. I would have said about the same thing. Um, but so obviously people think, and they're right, that economically, if they can pay this debt off sooner, they can save themselves interest costs. And, and we're not opposed to that. And Peg, I know you're really not opposed to that. But then the question becomes is, is the best way to do that by making extra payments or bigger payments to the debt, to the mortgage, or putting it into an investment. And I've always said, I don't say this for self-serving reasons, if you can average a rate of return higher on the investment than the cost of debt uh, on the mortgage, it actually makes more sense to invest that money than balloon pay that mortgage early. A lot of people want to apply the money right to the mortgage. I don't think that's the most efficient way to do it. Um, I'm not opposed to doing it. But I just think that's that there's a better way to do that and, and pay it off sooner. But, yes, saving interest costs over the life of a mortgage, uh, if you can, certainly makes sense. Uh, Rashini, we're up against the clock a little bit, right? We are up against the clock, so I just want to remind people they can talk. You can talk directly with Peg and Bruce this morning. They're taking your calls. Lots of great information. I love the real straightforward advice, especially, Peg, this morning that you're giving, that people have to ask a lot of questions when they're going into new relationships, kids are involved, all those kinds of things. The number's 651 989 9226. That will get you the phone line. That will also get you our text line. There are texts already coming in. We'd love to talk with you this morning on Valentine's Day. So Peg and Bruce has have lots of great information about retirement, your finances, planning for a wedding with retirement in mind. So really good stuff uh, from both of them today. So give us a call on your money this morning. 651-989-9226. We are back on Your Money, sponsored by Wealth Enhancement Group. Peg and Bruce are taking your questions today. Call us, text us, 651-989-9226. And we already have some texts coming in. Let's go to this text. Can Peg talk about the $300 reduction on the front page of your tax forms? Which line number and what qualifies? Well, Peg, they were right to ask you to do it because you understand this a lot better than I do. Yeah. Well, um, back last year with the CARES Act, um, the government truly wanted us to continue to be supportive of charities, even though it's been, you know, hard times. And so what they put inside the CARES Act is this provision that if indeed you do not itemize, which is... 70 plus percent do not itemize anymore. They take the standard deduction that on the front page of your return, you can write off, if you will, $300 worth of contributions that you've made to eligible charities. So eligible means a 501c3 and you need to get a receipt from the people that you um, gave the charity to And so this is a great provision. It just means $300 off your return. I know a lot of people, $25 here, $50 there, 
um, and, and it can add up quite quickly. When and if you use this provision from the CARES Act, I've coached my clients that on the receipt, put CARES Act 2020. Because what happens is if you just put in your pile of statements and 1099s and all the information to the CPA or the accountant, and it's a, and it's a deduction for charity, a lot of times they'll like, oh, this person's a standard and they just push it all aside, you know, not deductible. But this is a unique situation. Secondly, for 2021, with the new um, act that came out already this year, they, uh, the $300 is for per return in 2020. So even if you're a joint couple, you only get the $300. What they did in 2021 is they actually kind of corrected that. You can't go backwards, but for 2021, on a joint return, you'll be able to take $600. So keep that in mind for 2021 and start saving your receipts. I just don't know how the texter knew to ask you and not me, but they're absolutely correct that you do that better than I did. <laughs> you have smart listeners, Bruce, right? <laughs> smart listeners. Uh, Judy is on the line from YZ. Hi, Judy. Good morning. Um, I have a question about my husband who qualifies for both railroad retirement and Social Security. He turns uh, age 70 in January of 2022, and we were told by a representative from the railroad retirement that he could go ahead and start collecting Social Security now, and his railroad retirement would still increase, and then he would still get the higher amount when he begins collecting in, uh, or applies for, or starts receiving benefits at age 70. And I'm concerned that if we did that, we would still be locking him into a lower Social Security amount and that the railroad retirement would not increase. Hey, Judy, thanks for listening, and thanks for a great question. So, Peg, over the years, I know I've had a handful of uh, railroad railroad retirement uh, people, and I don't I I hope you're better prepared than I am in terms of how that ties in with Social Security to answer Judy's question. Yeah, I appreciate you hoping, Bruce, that I know this (laughs) on the top of my head. Uh, But that one is actually pretty complex. And so in our in our business, I just actually want to say this statement right now. We we've only got and I believe like one walking encyclopedia, and that would be Ryan McEwen down in our Mankato office. God love him. He can keep it all in his head and then just spit all these rules out. Well, this one is complex. So I wouldn't want to even attempt to, to answer that. Um, this would be another one, Bruce, where we could go to the round table and get all the details uh, for Judy and then come back next week. All right, let's plan to do that. And you're absolutely right about Ryan, but I would also say uh, Brian Vanak comes pretty close to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kate, Kate is pretty awesome. There's a handful of people that might be listening this morning at Wealth Enhancement Group that actually know the answer to this without having to look it up. Or if they don't know, they know exactly where to look and they can have it in a couple seconds. So, Judy, if you can listen next week and anyone else that's uh, uh, been an employee uh, of the railroad and has some sort of a railroad pension, uh, we'll try to do that uh, justice next week. Sorry we're uh, unable to do it right now. 
All right, let's go back to our text line. Uh, where on the 2020 income tax form does one put the QCD this year? Ah, QCDs. And, and uh, again, for listeners that don't know what that is, uh, Qualified Charitable Deduction or QCD is something, a strategy that you can use for your charitable giving, and it has to come from your required minimum distribution. So, Peg, maybe go into some detail for people that don't know, obviously, the texture does of, you know, what RMDs are and when you have to take those and what QCDs are and how they relate to RMDs. And, yes, I know we use way too many acronyms in this industry, but it's easier to say RMD, QCD than required minimum distribution and qualified charitable distribution. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. The required minimum distribution rules... Uh, they actually changed last year uh, with the SECURE Act back in January. It had nothing to do with the COVID or anything. It was just a new rule. And the required minimum age changed from 70 and a half to 72. The reason I bring that up is because these QCDs, you have the ability to start taking um, your RMD and giving it to charity at 70 and a half. They didn't change that age. When you want to utilize this strategy, where your IRA is custodianed is going to send a 1099 for the entire amount that you took as a distribution. It will not show a QCD was given. So it's important that when you get the uh, receipt from your charity, and this is what I tell my clients, Put a big QCD on that receipt and give it to your accountant. Now, where do you put that on your tax return? Well, there's a line on your tax return that shows where you took distributions from an IRA. So you put that number in there. And then next to it, on all the tax returns I look at every day, these accountants and CPAs are putting the the letters QCD next to it. And then when they flow over the number to the right-hand side, it's less than the amount shown under IRA distributions for the amount that they gave to charity. So does that make sense, Bruce? Yeah, it does. And it actually made me think of a follow-up question that the texter didn't ask, and maybe you can comment on it. Um, I am told by my operations people that, Different custodians are better at this than others, that even though it's the law of the land and it's been in existence for a couple of years, that some of our custodians uh, haven't totally figured this out yet. Um, has that been your experience? And, uh, you know, how do, how do we deal with that with regard to communication to clients and so forth? Yeah, I think custodians are defaulting to um, being extra cautious because, when we request a custodian to send a check to charity, uh, they don't actually have a thousand percent conviction that that check actually got to the charity. So liability wise, they, they would like us or the client to prove then with a way by way of a receipt that the, that that money actually went to the charity. So that's why I believe it's a little bit more complicated for uh, the custodians, they just want to show the amount, and then you prove to the tax people that it actually got to that charity. 
Good. That's, that's, that makes sense to me. Um, and again, I know we want to get in as many texts and, and calls today as we can, but Peg, I do want to go back. People that maybe joined us late, first half of the show and kind of in honor of Valentine's Day, we've been talking about some financial planning things to, to be aware of if you're marrying late in life. And we talked about understanding each other's retirement goals. When do you want to retire? Do you want to be close to family? Are you going to maybe work some sort of a part-time job after you retire? And we also talked about understanding one another's finances or learning about one another's finances. And you talked about how old habits die hard. Someone might be set in their ways, and your new spouse might have a totally different philosophy about money and spending money or investing money than you do. Um, so we talked about communication being key. Uh, we talked about maybe bringing debt into a relationship or maybe uh, children from a previous marriage and how are you going to treat them. We talked about planning your wedding. If you're seeing us and, you're, and you haven't gotten married yet, uh, how, much, how much do you want to spend on a wedding? And then we started to get into some of the complexities of you know, filing your taxes and how that changes when you get married. But I think you wanted to elaborate a little bit more on a couple of other technical things regarding, uh, well, Social Security, maybe estate planning. Um, but let's put a bow on that, and then we'll, uh, the rest of the show, we'll, let, uh, we'll get as many texts and questions as we can. Yeah, I wanted to bring up Social Security. I kind of highlighted it in the beginning of the show because I believe Social Security is complex. And there's a couple different ways that you can uh, be eligible for Social Security. You can be eligible on your own records, or you could be eligible on your spouse's records, or you could be a survivor of some type and get an eligible for some Social Security. So in the, what I see, Bruce, is that a lot of these couples that are getting married later in life, they've actually been married before. And so I have to look at what are they eligible for if they were married before and they were divorced. So they must have been married for at least 10 years, currently unmarried, and divorced for at least two years. So believe it or not, this conversation happens because I know they want to get married, but they also want to understand all their finances. What would they be losing and what would they be gaining? So it's very possible that they could be losing a benefit, you know, um, through this divorce and, and, and if you remarry. Then as a survivor and, uh, you know, your, your husband or your wife has passed away, you must have been married for at least 10 years, must be unmarried or remarried after the age of 60. So, there's complexity here. So if indeed you are going to tie the knot, I just would encourage you to, to meet with a financial advisor or somebody that can walk through uh, the pros and cons. Not that we're saying, hey, don't get married for a monetary reason. I'm always of the belief that you should understand your options and make sure that it's clear so that you both can agree. I just want to add really quickly, because uh, again, I want, I want to get the listeners, but that's a great point, Peg, and it's not just Social Security. There's some other things as well, you know, maybe from a tax standpoint. But I think any law that promotes um, – I, I actually have a client uh, that got a divorce, still, still live together, still love each other, loving, committed relationship, 
but they got a divorce because it was economically in their best interest to do so. Any law that promotes divorce or any law that that discourages getting married, I just think it's a bad law, and there's got to be a way to fix that, if you will. Um, so, yes, be aware of your economic situation, and it doesn't mean we're recommending you do or don't get married, but know what the pros and cons are going to be financially. And most people probably can't do that by themselves. They need to talk to a financial advisor to even understand some of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I we do this every single day and to try to keep track of everything, but then to pull in that information that's unique to the particular couple is very helpful and rewarding for us because we feel like we're doing a great job helping them uh, make good decisions. All right, let's go back to the phone lines. Pat is on the line from Maple Grove. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for morning, taking Pat. my call. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a question. Uh, my husband recently passed away, and I have a hospital bed and a big power wheelchair that's barely used. Uh, it, can you tell me if it's a tax-wise, is it a better idea for me to try to sell it or to um, donate it? And if donate is the the better of the two, where do I find who is a qualified um, charitable organization? Because my understanding is that you would need to donate it to one of those. Hey, Pat. First of all, Peg and I are so sorry for your, for your loss. Um, you sound really strong in your voice, but that's got to be uh, a really, really hard thing to go through. And it's a hard thing to go through at any time in life, but, but you know, underneath the umbrella of COVID that we're all living through right now, that, that has to be really, really hard. So our, our, our thoughts and prayers and condolences. Uh, Peg, you want to address uh, uh, Pat's question a little bit first? Yeah, we get this question all the time. Uh, and, and should you donate it or should you sell it? So the first thing I look at is what um, ability do you have to write it off as a charity donation? So we when we went over a couple today. If you're over 70 and a half and you have an IRA, that would be an idea for um, taking a, a write-off. And then if you don't itemize, you know you have this $300 off the front of your page, and it's $600 um, for a joint return this year. But it's a math drill. So when you're when you're thinking about your tax bracket, and let's just say you're in the low 10 or 15 percent tax bracket, then what write-off would you really get? Well, it would be a smaller one, and then if you sold it for a thousand dollars, and so it's just doing a ledger, just saying is it is it best to sell it? Is it best to take it on my return? Then maybe you. Um, have a, a feeling that you should donate it, regardless of whether you can write it off or not, then you have to look for one of these 501c3 organizations that are going to give you a receipt that it is eligible for some kind of a deduction. Yeah, and, and um, in terms of how you find those, I, I don't know. I think you can probably Google or just even ask around a little bit to find, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that would take that, that bed and, and uh, give you the, the receipt for the deduction. But in terms of the economics, Peg, 
Uh, I'm about 99% sure that in Pat's case, economically, she's going to get more for the sale of that bed than she would get in terms of a tax deduction if she gave it away. But I don't know if this is totally an economic question. This might be, you know, an intrinsic reward question that Pat feels more um, a, a greater sense of helping others and intrinsic reward by by making a charitable gift of that bed. So um, if, if it was purely an economical question, probably sell it. But I got a feeling it's more than that. And, and, and you know, uh, good luck, Pat, figuring out what you want to do. But that's, yeah, that's a tough one. All right, let's go back to the phone, the text lines. Peg, this is for you. They want to know the temperature in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's um, going to be 85 and sunny today. Yes. Calm wind. All right, right. Tiny violins for for Peg. Uh, This person says... I am playing golf today. Yes, um, got to got to do that on the weekends because uh, work is busy. Love it. All right, this person says I'm 72. I retired at 62. Started Social Security. However, this year I worked and made fifty thousand dollars. Will that increase my Social Security that I get each month? What a great question, Peg. Uh, the incremental change, they look at all of your records, the highest 35 years, and that amount will be, I, I don't think it's going to change at all. That's my opinion. It either won't change at all or it'll be pennies that you won't even notice it. And the key there is what Peg said is your Social Security benefit is based on your best 35 years. And if that 50000 you made at age 72 is in the top 35, there may be some very, 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 very minor adjustment. But if it's not even in the top 35 years, then there'll be no adjustment at all. All right. And let's get this question in from Michael in Plymouth. I'll, hopefully uh, we can clarify. He's talking about retiring in the spring. He feels like he has enough money in mutual funds to bridge and to draw, but he's wondering about the market right now. And should he do anything differently this year and maybe create a buffer for himself? Peg, can you do short, mid and long in about uh, less than a minute? Well, yes. So evaluate your holdings right now based on risk, short being, you know, more conservative, medium being maybe halfway, and then long term is in the stock market. I go by how, when do you need the money? If it's for gap years, and I'm sitting here looking at the market now, I would have those years in a safer bucket, just to be sure. I don't like to sell a stock to live on and take that risk, especially if it's short-term money. And I would just add really quickly, if you ask me where the market will be six months from now relative to today, I have no idea if it will be higher or lower or the same. But if you ask me where it will be six years from now, I'm highly confident it will be higher than it is today. All right. You guys got covered a lot of ground. Of course, Peg and Bruce will be back next Sunday for another edition of Your Money. You can join us right here with your calls and texts. During the week, you can leave them questions at 888-6ADVICE or email yourmoney at wealthenhancement.com. Have a great Valentine's Day, Peg and Bruce, and to everyone else. Make it a successful week. We'll catch you next Sunday. 